Chapter One, Part One of the Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni. Chapter One, Part One. That branch of the Lake of Como, which extends towards the south, is enclosed by two unbroken chains of mountains, which, as they advance and recede, diversify its shores with numerous bays and inlets. Suddenly the lake contracts itself, and takes the course and form of a river, between a promontory on the right and a wide open shore on the opposite side. The bridge which there joins the two banks seems to render this transformation more sensible to the eye, and marks the point where the lake ends, and the Adda again begins, soon to resume the name of the lake, where the banks receding afresh allow the water to extend and spread itself into new gulfs and bays. The open country bordering the lake, formed of the alluvial deposits of three great torrents, reclines upon the roots of two contiguous mountains, one named San Martino, the other in the Lombard dialect, Il Resegne, because of its many peaks seen in profile, which in truth resemble the teeth of a saw so much so, that no one at first sight, viewing it in front, as for example from the northern bastions of Milan, could fail to distinguish it by this simple description from the other mountains of more obscure name and ordinary form in that long and vast chain. For a considerable distance the country rises with a gentle and continuous ascent. Afterwards it is broken into hill and dale, terraces and elevated plains, formed by the intertwining of the roots of the two mountains, and the action of the waters. The shore itself, intersected by the torrents, consists for the most part of gravel and large flints. The rest of the plain, of fields and vineyards, interspersed with towns, villages, and hamlets. Other parts are clothed with woods, extending far up the mountain. Lecco, the principal of these towns, giving its name to the territory, is at a short distance from the bridge, and so close upon the shore, that, when the waters are high, it seems to stand in the lake itself. A large town even now, it promises soon to become a city. At the same time the events happened, which we undertake to recount, this town, already of considerable importance, was also a place of defense, and for that reason had the honor of lodging a commander, and the advantage of possessing a fixed garrison of Spanish soldiers, who taught modesty to the damsels and matrons of the country, bestowed from time to time marks of their favor on the shoulder of a husband or a father, and never failed in autumn to disperse themselves in the vineyards, to thin the grapes, and lighten for the peasant the labors of the vintage. From one to the other of these towns, from the heights to the lake, from one height to another, down through the little valleys which lay between, there ran many narrow lanes or mule-paths, and they still exist, one while abrupt and steep, another level, another pleasantly sloping, in most places enclosed by walls built of large flints, and clothed here and there with ancient ivy, which, eating with its roots into the cement, usurps its place, and binds together the wall it renders verdant. For some distance these lanes are hidden, and as it were buried between the walls, so that the passenger, looking upwards, 
can see nothing but the sky and the peaks of some neighboring mountain. In other places they are terraced. Sometimes they skirt the edge of a plain, or project from the face of a declivity, like a long staircase, upheld by walls which flank the hillsides like bastions, but in the pathway rise only the height of a parapet. And here the eye of a traveler can range over varied and most beautiful prospects. On one side he commands the azure surface of the lake, and the inverted image of the rural banks reflected in the placid wave. On the other, the Ada, scarcely escaped from the arches of the bridge, expands itself anew into a little lake, then is again contracted, and prolongs to the horizon its bright windings. Upward, the massive piles of the mountains, overhanging the head of the gazer, Below, the cultivated terrace, the champagne, the bridge. Opposite, the further bank of the lake, and rising from it, the mountain boundary. Along one of these narrow lanes, in the evening of the 7th of November, in the year 1628, Don Abondio, curate of one of the towns alluded to above, was leisurely returning home from a walk. Our author does not mention the name of the town, two blanks already. He was quietly repeating his office, and now and then, between one psalm and another, he would shut the breviary upon the forefinger of his right hand, keeping it there for a mark, then putting both his hands behind his back, the right, with the closed book, in the palm of the left, he pursued his way with downcast eyes, kicking from time to time towards the wall the flints which lay as stumbling-blocks in the path. Thus he gave more undisturbed audience to the idle thoughts which had come to tempt his spirit, while his lips repeated of their own accord his evening prayers. Escaping from these thoughts, he raised his eyes to the mountain which rose opposite, and mechanically gazed on the gleaming of the scarcely set sun, which, making its way through the clefts of the opposite mountain, was thrown upon the projecting peaks in large unequal masses of rose-colored light. The breviary open again, and another portion recited, he reached a turn where he always used to raise his eyes and look forward, and so he did today. After the turn, the road ran straight forward about sixty yards, and then divided into two lanes, Y-fashion. The right-hand path ascended towards the mountain and led to the parsonage. The left branch descended through the valley to a torrent and on this side the walls were not higher than about two feet. The inner walls of the two ways, instead of meeting so as to form an angle, ended in a little chapel, on which there depicted certain figures, long, waving, and terminating in a point. These, in the intention of the artist, and to the eyes of the neighboring inhabitants, represented flames. Alternately with the flames were other figures, indescribable, meant for souls in purgatory, souls in flames of brick color on a gray ground enlivened with patches of the natural wall, where the plaster was gone. The curate, having turned the corner and looked forward, as was his custom, towards the chapel, beheld an unexpected sight, and one he would not willingly have seen. Two men, one opposite the other, were stationed at the confluence, so to say, of the two ways. One of them was sitting across the low wall, with one leg dangling on the outer side, and the other supporting him in the path. His companion was standing up, leaning against the wall, 
with his arms crossed on his breast. Their dress, their carriage, and so much of their expression as could be distinguished at the distance at which the curate stood, left no doubt about their condition. Each had a green net on his head, which fell upon the left shoulder, and ended in a large tassel. Their long hair appearing in one large lock upon the forehead. On the upper lip two long mustachios, curled at the end. Their doublets, confined by bright leathern girdles, from which hung a brace of pistols. A little horn of powder dangling round their necks, and falling on their breasts like a necklace. On the right side of their large and loose pantaloons, a pocket, and from the pocket the handle of a dagger, a sword hanging on the left, with a large basket-hilt of brass, carved in cipher, polished and gleaming. All, at a glance, discovered them to be individuals of the species bravo. This order, now quite extinct, was then most flourishing in Lombardy, and already of considerable antiquity. Has any one no clear idea of it? Here are some authentic sketches, which may give him a distinct notion of its principal characteristics, of the means put in force to destroy it, and of its obstinate vitality. On the 8th of April, 1583, the most illustrious and excellent Signor Don Carlo de Aragon, Prince of Castelvetrano, Duke of Terra Nuova, Marquis of Avola, Count of Burghetto, Grand Admiral and Grand Constable of Sicily, Governor of Milan and Captain General of His Catholic Majesty in Italy, being fully informed of the intolerable misery in which this city of Milan was lain, and does lie by reason of bravos and vagabonds, publishes a ban against them, declares and defines all those to be included in this ban, and to be held bravos and vagabonds who, whether foreigners or natives, have no occupation, or having it do not employ themselves in it, but without salary, or with, engage themselves to any cavalier or gentleman, officer or merchant, to render them aid and service, or rather, as may be presumed, to lay weight against others. All these he commands, that, within the term of six days, they should evacuate the country, threatens the galleys to the refractory, and grants to all officials the most strangely ample and indefinite power of executing the order. But the following year, on the 12th of April, the same signor, perceiving that the city is completely full of the said bravos, returned to live as they had lived before, their customs wholly unchanged and their numbers undiminished, issues another hue and cry, more vigorous and marked, in which, among other ordinances, he prescribes that whatever person, as well as inhabitant of this city as a foreigner, who by the testimony of two witnesses should appear to be held and commonly reputed a bravo, and to have that name, although he cannot be convicted of having committed any crime, for this reputation of being a bravo alone, without any other proof, may, by the said judges, and by every individual of them, be put to the rack and torture, for process of information, and although he confess no crime whatever, notwithstanding, he shall be sent to the galleys for the said three years, for the sole reputation and name of Bravo, as aforesaid. All this and more which is omitted, because his excellency is resolved to be obeyed by every one. At hearing such brave and confident words of so great a seigneur, 
accompanied too with many penalties, one feels much inclined to suppose that, at the echo of their rumblings, all the bravos had disappeared for ever. But the testimony of a seigneur not less authoritative, nor less endowed with names, obliges us to believe quite the contrary. The most illustrious and the most excellent Senor Juan Fernandez de Velasco, constable of Castile, grand chamberlain of his majesty, duke of the city of Frias, count of Haro and Castelnovo, lord of the house of Velasco, and that of the seven infantas of Lara, governor of the state of Milan, etc., on the 5th of June, 1593, he also, fully informed of how much loss and destruction, bravos and vagabonds are the cause, and of the mischief such sort of people effects against the public weal, in despite of justice, warns them anew that within the term of six days they are to evacuate the country, repeating almost word for word the threats and penalties of his predecessor. On the 23rd of May, in a subsequent year, 1598, being informed with no little displeasure of mind, that, every day in this city and state, the number of these people, bravos and vagabonds, is on the increase, and day and night nothing is heard of them but murder, homicide, robbery, and crimes of every kind, for which there is greater facility, because these bravos are confident of being supported by their great employers, he prescribes anew the same remedies, increasing the dose, as men do in obstinate maladies. Let every one then, he concludes, be wholly on his guard against contravening in the least the present proclamation, for, instead of experiencing the clemency of his excellency, he will experience the rigor of his anger, he being resolved and determined that this shall be the last and peremptory admonition. Not, however, of this opinion was the most illustrious and most excellent senor, el senor Don Pietro Enriquez de Acevedo, Count of Fuentes, Captain and Governor of the State of Milan. Not of this opinion was he, and for good reasons. Being fully informed of the misery in which this city and state lies, by reason of the great number of bravos which abound in it, and being resolved wholly to extirpate a plant so pernicious, he issues, on the 5th of December, 1600, a new admonition, full of severe penalties, with a firm purpose that, with all rigor, and without any hope of remission, they shall be fully carried out. We must believe, however, that he did not apply himself to this matter with that hearty good will which he knew how to employ in contriving cabals and exciting enemies against his great enemy, Henry the Fourth. History informs us that he succeeded in arming against that king, the Duke of Savoy, and caused him to lose a city. He succeeded also in engaging the Duke of Biron on his behalf, and caused him to lose his head. But as to this pernicious plant of bravos, certain it is that it continued to blossom until the 22nd of September, 1612. On that day, the most illustrious Señor Don Giovanni de Mendoza, Marquis of Hinojosa, gentleman, etc., governor, etc., had serious thoughts of extirpating it. To this end he sent the usual proclamation, corrected and enlarged, to Pandolfo and Marco Tullio Molatesti, associated printers to his majesty, with orders to print it to the destruction of the bravos. 
yet they lived to receive on the twenty fourth of december sixteen eighteen similar and more vigorous blows from the most illustrious and most excellent senor the senor don gomez suarez de figueroa duke of feria etc governor etc moreover they not being hereby done to death the most illustrious and most excellent senor the senor gonzala fernandez de cordova under whose government these events happened to don abondio had found himself obliged to recorrect and republish the usual proclamation against the bravos on the fifth day of october sixteen twenty seven i e one year one month and two days before this memorable event nor was this the last publication we do not feel bound however to make mention of these which ensued as they are beyond the period of our story we will notice only one of the thirteenth of february sixteen thirty two in which the most illustrious and most excellent senor the duke of feria a second time governor signifies to us that the greatest outrages are caused by those denominated bravos this suffices to make it pretty certain that at the time of which we treat there was as yet no lack of bravos that the two described above were on the lookout for some one was but too evident but what more alarmed don abondio was that he was assured by certain signs that he was the person expected for the moment he appeared they exchanged glances raising their heads with a movement which plainly expressed that both at once had exclaimed here's our man he who bestrode the wall got up and brought his other leg into the path his companion left leaning on the wall and both began to walk towards him don abondio keeping the breviary open before him as if reading directed his glance forward to watch their movements he saw them advancing straight towards him multitudes of thoughts all at once crowded upon him with quick anxiety he asked himself whether any pathway to the right or left lay between him and the bravos and quickly came the answer no he made a hasty examination to discover whether he had offended some great man some vindictive neighbor but even in this moment of alarm the consoling testimony of conscience somewhat reassured him meanwhile the bravos drew near eyeing him fixedly he put the forefinger and middle finger of his left hand up to his collar as if to settle it and running the two fingers round his neck he turned his head backwards at the same time twisting his mouth in the same direction and looked out of the corner of his eyes as far as he could to see whether any one was coming but he saw no one he cast a glance over the low wall into the fields no one another more subdued along the path forward no one but the bravos what is to be done turn back it is too late run it is the same as to say follow me or worse since he could not escape the danger he went to meet it these moments of uncertainty were already so painful he desired only to shorten them he quickened his pace recited a verse in a louder tone composed his face to a tranquil and careless expression as well as he could used every effort to have a smile ready and when he found himself in the presence of the two good men exclaiming mentally here we are he stood still senor curato said one staring in his face 
Who commands me? quickly answered Donabondio, raising his eyes from the book and holding it open in both hands. You intend, continued the other, with the threatening angry brow of one who has caught an inferior committing some grievous fault, you intend to-morrow to marry Renzo Tremaglino and Lucia Mondella. That is, replied Dona Bondio, with a quivering voice, that is, you gentlemen are men of the world, and know well how these things go. A poor curate has nothing to do with them. They patch up their little treaties between themselves, and then, then they come to us as one goes to the bank to make a demand, and we, we are the servants of the community. Mark well, said the bravo, in a lower voice, but with a solemn tone of command. This marriage is not to be performed, not to-morrow, nor ever. But gentlemen, replied Dona Bondio, with the soothing, mild tone of one who would persuade an impatient man, be so kind as put yourselves in my place. If the thing depended on me, you see plainly that it is no advantage to me. Come, come, interrupted the bravo. If the thing were to be decided by prating, you might soon put our heads in a poke. We know nothing about it, and we don't want to know more. A warned man, you understand. But gentlemen like you are too just, too reasonable. But— this time the other companion broke in, who had not hitherto spoken. But the marriage is not to be performed, or, here a great oath, or he who performs it will never repent, because he shall have no time for it. Another oath. Silence, silence, replied the first orator. The Signor Curato knows the way of the world, and we are good sort of men, who don't wish to do him any harm, if he will act like a wise man. Signor Curato, the illustrious Signor Don Rodrigo, our master, sends his kind respects. To the mind of Don Abondio, this name was like the lightning flash in a storm at night, which, illuminating for a moment and confusing all objects, increases the terror. As by instinct, he made a low bow and said, If you could suggest— Oh, suggest is for you who know Latin— again interrupted the bravo, with a smile between awkwardness and ferocity. It is all very well for you. But, above all, let not a word be whispered about this notice that we have given you for your good, or, ahem, it will be the same as marrying them. Well, what will your reverence that we say for you to the illustrious Señor Don Rodrigo? My respects. Be clear, Señor Curato, disposed, always disposed to obedience. And having said these words, he did not himself well know whether he had given a promise, or whether he had only sent an ordinary compliment. The bravos took it, and showed that they took it, in the more serious meaning. Very well. Good evening, Signor Curato, said one of them, leading his companion away. End of chapter 1, part 1